1: banking services provided by green dot bank member fdic only funds and envelopes earn apy apy can change at any time
2: from silicon valley to wall street the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage but what will the next phase of ai adoption look like which companies from big tech to startups will dominate and where do the risks and unintended consequences lie i'm emily chang
3: This
4: is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. The Supreme Court is becoming a daunting obstacle for President Biden's agenda. Without a working majority in a deeply divided Congress, Biden has had to rely on administrative agencies to implement his policy goals. And the conservative justices on the court are embracing a judge-made major questions doctrine that signals trouble ahead for broad assertions of agency power, including efforts to address climate change. Joining me is Pat Parento, a professor at the Vermont Law School. Is this court taking aim at what's called the administrative state?
5: Yes. That's what the major questions doctrine that they've been invoking lately, like in the OSHA case. Is really all about. It's curtailing the power of administrative agencies that the conservative justices are at least skeptical of, if not outright hostile to.
4: What is the major questions doctrine and when did it become
5: doctrine? Nobody knows exactly what the contours of the doctrine is. The court has actually never explained what it is, what are its boundaries, where it came from. You know, it starts with the separation of powers concept where Congress is the body that creates law, the agencies implement the law, the courts say what the law is. That's the simplistic sort of structure of our government. And the conservative justices are constantly limiting the power of agencies to act as legislatures and sort of create law in their own right. That's what the concern is, the philosophical concern is. And it manifests itself in this doctrine that they've created, or fiction really, of the major question, which is any decision or rule that has major economic and social consequences, whatever that means, should be subject to stricter scrutiny. And the court is saying we want to see explicitly from Congress a delegation of authority with limitations, what they call the limiting principle, uh, when they delegate authority to agencies. And unless these conservative justices are are satisfied that Congress has deliberately, intentionally given the agencies this much power and put some limits on that power, then the courts are going to step in and say the agencies do not have that kind of authority. It's particularly true in cases like this recent OSHA case, where you have an agency issuing rules, unlike rules they've issued in the past. So in the OSHA case, of course, we're talking about COVID exposure in the workplace. And even though, no, clearly COVID is a danger in the workplace when people are closely packed together, the conservative members of the court said, yes, that's true, but it's not limited to the workplace. It's general, it's in the whole public, it's in all kinds of public spaces. So we don't think Congress contemplated giving OSHA the power to regulate a broad public health problem like the COVID pandemic in the workplace. So that's an example, I guess, of of where the conservative members of the court are looking for opportunities to rein in, as they see it, overreach by the agencies.
4: If you subscribe to that doctrine, does that mean you believe that Congress is so smart and intuitive – that when they pass the laws, they can anticipate all the different problems that may come up. For example, COVID.
5: That is exactly the right question. It's totally unrealistic to think that Congress could anticipate every permutation of a social issue, a public health issue like COVID, or a public health and safety issue like, for example, climate change, which is an impact on everything. And when Congress legislates, it does so at a moment in time Based on the information that it has, trying to anticipate where things may go and try to get ahead of problems that are affecting public health and safety, but they can't possibly know all the contours and different situations that may arise, or how science may evolve to identify new threats. For example, we've now discovered that these so-called forever chemicals, like PFOS and PFOA, and probably hundreds more like them pose actual serious public health threats to people, even though these chemicals are found in in everyday products, including pizza boxes and, of course, firefighting foam, Teflon uh, in, in your kitchen. And now we understand that at very low levels, in the parts per trillion, these kinds of chemicals, which are very persistent, don't break down, and can cause different kinds of health effects, including cancer for some of them, Now we find, after the fact, that they're a real serious problem. They're contaminating water supplies around the country. And so now EPA, of course, is beginning to address that. But that's something that Congress couldn't have foreseen when it was passing laws in the 1970s dealing with toxic substances. They have to give these expert agencies the discretion and the authority to go out and investigate problems. And when they find them, deal with them. You can't be running back to Congress. Every single time you find a new chemical on the market that poses a threat, that that would cause the whole process to break down. So, this major question doctrine is built on a false premise that Congress could, in fact, understand what the threats are and specifically identify them when they give the agencies power to address them.
4: Pat, even with the second vaccine mandate that the Supreme Court considered, where it was a healthcare vaccination rule, issued by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services to protect the health and safety of Medicaid and Medicare recipients. Even there, four justices thought that that agency didn't have the power
5: to protect those patients. Right. And that's very true of EPA. You know, EPA has this incredible array of statutory authority and and mandates, really, to address these problems. And so, you know, EPA over now um, going on 50 years um, has, um, <clears throat> excuse me, accumulated um, expertise um, to to address these these issues. And the you know the fact that, that the, the fine grained details of which type of regulation should be used to address which kind of problem, again, that, that is really not something. That members of Congress who are generalists, they're not experts. I mean, they may have some specific expertise in c- certain areas, but they certainly don't have the kind of expertise that an agency like EPA has accumulated with 17,000 people on the payroll and 20,000 contractors that they do, they contract with to do investigations. You know, that kind of capacity, and institutional ability to deal with these issues and design regulations appropriately to, to address them in the, probably in the most efficient and cost-effective way you can, you know, again, that's not something Congress is even capable of doing. So there has to be some level of trust that when Congress authorizes agencies to act, the agencies will act in an appropriate way. And of course, the courts are always there to police what the agencies are doing. And if they find that an agency has really gone, you know, in an unreasonable way, um, they can correct that. So that's the way the system really was designed with checks and balances. It's worked pretty well. And, you know, the Supreme Court, to arrogate to itself the decision about what, how a statute should be interpreted and, and, and whether Congress has been clear enough in its direction to the agency. There's some room for the court to, to, you know, look at those questions, but to arrogate to themselves the decision that, no, OSHA does not have the authority to address a public health crisis that is unmistakable across the country. You know, that's going too far, I think. That's the court becoming an activist court and a court of you know, not last resort, but first resort, saying we're going to decide how much power these agencies have.
4: So tell us about the case of West Virginia v. EPA that's coming up next month.
5: Right. So this is the case involving regulation of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gas emissions from power plants, primarily, of course, coal-fired power plants. Gas-fired plants don't have nearly the same problem as coal-fired plants, at least at the combustion stage of of greenhouse gas emissions. So, you know, coal-fired power plants are the single largest industrial source uh, of these emissions that we have to bring under control if we're going to deal with the climate crisis. And um, it's been a subject, of course, of of vigorous debate and controversy. Uh, The state of West Virginia and their Attorney General Patrick Morrissey, you know, has been the, the, has spearheaded the effort to prevent EPA from requiring sort of more, I guess I'd say, aggressive measures to reduce emissions from these plants, including switching from coal to gas or switching from gas or coal to renewables. Um, and in EPA's clean power plan under the Obama administration, it did. Propose a rule—it's it, called guidance, but it has the force of a rule—that um, would w- gave gave the state some flexibility in bringing these emissions down. But it clearly identified what we call generation shifting as a major strategy, and it's that generation shifting approach to reducing emissions that West Virginia and many other uh, states who happen to be Republican dominated controlled states um, are bringing to the Supreme Court. So it comes down to this question again. Did Congress in the Clean Air Act specifically authorize EPA to use these, these more novel or there's not so much novel but more aggressive measures to reduce emissions from power plants, not just generation shifting, but also things like emissions trading? which, of course, we have used for years to address things like acid rain, which is a long-range transport problem, you know, comes from faraway sources and causes problems to forests and and, and and lakes and streams um, from power plants located far from the places where they're impacting those resources. And EPA, for a long time, has designed in a variety of ways, smog is another one, where you have, ozone pollution, smog pollution that travels across many state lines, EPA came up with an emissions trading program to cost-effectively reduce these emissions by saying, we'll over-control emissions at one source to allow another source to continue to emit. And by doing that, we'll find the most cost-effective or cheapest way to reduce those emissions. And they've been very successful with that kind of an approach. So the West Virginia case has now asked the Supreme Court to rule those kinds of approaches out, to say that EPA doesn't have the authority to consider generation shifting from coal to cleaner sources of energy, doesn't have the authority to use cap-and-trade mechanisms to to look at an entire region, let's say, of of the country and find the most cost-effective ways to reduce emissions. West Virginia is arguing the only authority EPA has is to regulate at the source, or as they put it, within the fence line of the individual facilities, and that will greatly constrain EPA's ability to make a meaningful reduction in these emissions if the court were to accept that.
4: So if the court follows the same reasoning that it did in the OSHA case, is it likely to rule against the EPA then?
5: A lot of uh, commentators believe that is the case. I I think the OSHA case is distinguishable, primarily because EPA has historically regulated power plants from day one. The Clean Air Act was passed in 1970. EPA has been regulating these plants for all kinds of emissions for 50 years, and they've done it, as I say, with a variety of tools. Sometimes it's what we call end-of-stack or top-of-stack controls like scrubbers. Sometimes it's with emissions trading and cap and trade. Sometimes it's with efficiency measures. They, they've used, in other words, all the tools in the toolbox, but they've been regulating power plants forever. And the, and and this is an, a, a category of, of industries that's probably the most heavily regulated industry in the country. So it's not like OSHA, you know, importing, let's say, a new concern about a general public health threat like the COVID pandemic into the workplace. is quite the contrary, quite to the contrary, this is EPA, you know, regulating an industrial source that's, that it's always regulated and that it's always regulated in different ways. Whether that will persuade the conservative members of the court is not only an open question, it's probably a hard sell. Because there's no way that this the court took this case with the idea that they were going to validate the approach that the Obama administration was taking with the Clean Power Plan. That seems pretty clear. The Clean Power Plan would never survive scrutiny by this court. But the interesting thing about the West Virginia case is, of course, the court is getting ahead of the agency. EPA hasn't proposed any rule for how they're going to. To regulate power plants, they've expressly said they are not going to uh, reinstitute the clean power plan, but they haven't said what they are, what EPA is going to do. So you have the court getting out in front of the agency in this case, which is highly unusual. Um, I would say unprecedented. In fact, um, the court is supposed to be reviewing final agency actions. There is no final agency action to review here which leads everyone to believe that the court must be contemplating an interpretation of the Clean Air Act that's designed to preempt EPA's thinking or discretion to, a, to frame a new rule. That's very unusual, and it, it will be something to see if the court actually does something like that. In other words, says, EPA, as you're engaging in this rulemaking, here are the boundaries that we will allow you to consider. That's really unprecedented in our jurisprudence.
4: We'll find out more next month when the justices hear arguments in that case. Thanks so much, Pat. That's Professor Pat Parento of the Vermont Law
1: School. You know success when you see it, or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen.
3: Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com.
4: Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. President Joe Biden's antitrust regime is facing its first big test of the year. Microsoft's $69 billion all-cash takeover of Activision Blizzard brings together two major gaming platforms in a deal that directly affects consumers. The agreement is likely to get an extensive review by the FTC or the Justice Department, the two antitrust regulators that have announced they're ready to increase their scrutiny of deals in general. Joining me is Jennifer Ree, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Litigation Analyst. U.S. antitrust enforcers announced an effort to toughen merger review. Was this expected?
6: Oh, yes. I think that this has been a long time coming. Um... You know, there's just been chatter in the industry for for several years now, I, and when I say the industry, I mean like academics and economists and and stakeholders in the antitrust world that antitrust enforcement over time has become too lax. Now, now that's not you know the majority view necessarily, but there's a strong view out there in the industry that for whatever reason, you know, whether it's been a failure of enforcement by the Department of Justice or FTC or whether it's been difficulty in the courts to get those decisions and set, you know, precedent that's helpful for future cases, that for whatever reason enforcement has become too lax. And I think one of the missions of President Biden when he came in and the antitrust enforcers that he has appointed has been to deal with this and to figure out whether, in fact, it has been too lax and what needs to be done about it and to try to tighten it
4: up. So they had this press conference. Did they explain what they're looking to do?
6: They did. So the press conference was targeted to what are called the horizontal merger guidelines. Now, there are two different guidelines called the Horizontal Merger Guidelines and the Vertical Merger Guidelines, and they are used by the agencies to, to give them sort of a step-by-step framework by which to analyze the deals that come before them and get reviewed. You know, they basically say, you know, here's what you should be looking for or how you should be conducting a review of these deals to determine whether they may harm competition and, and essentially you know, create a monopoly or violate the law. So, it's these guidelines that have been followed now for several years. The horizontal guidelines were last updated in 2010. The vertical guidelines were actually updated not very long ago during the Trump administration, but that update was then rescinded by the current Federal Trade Commission, which now is, has no vertical guidelines. The Department of Justice still has the old ones. And essentially, what they're asking is whether or not it's time to update both sets of guidelines. And, and when I say horizontal and vertical, Horizontal meaning they provide a framework for assessing deals um, where the companies are direct horizontal competitors. They both basically compete to offer the same product or service. The vertical guidelines are targeted to uh, mergers that result in vertical integration. So in other words, like a distributor buying a supplier um, or a manufacturer buying a distributor, something like that. They're operating at different levels of the supply chain in the same industry. Um, and it, these deals tend to ha- tend to be different, and they're analyzed differently. So we've had these two sets of guidelines. Um, and what they're asking is whether they should be put together. Uh, in in the press conference, they said, you know, maybe one option would be putting vertical and horizontal merger guidelines together, and just having a set of merger guidelines. Um, and whether or not they all need to be updated to better reflect you know, the current economy, you know, the digital markets that we live with today. Um, you know, how we assess these deals and whether we're appropriately catching the deals that we should that potentially violate the antitrust laws.
4: Are the tech giants at risk? Is one particular sector more at risk than others?
6: I think probably big tech, I'll say, is slightly more at risk, although because some of the changes that they're thinking about or looking at are directed toward elements of, of the economy that really only apply to big tech, like data aggregation or uh, the acquisition of a nascent startup competitor. But these are guidelines that apply to all mergers across the board. You know, So whatever the new guidelines are, they'll apply to every deal that's out there. So I wouldn't say that it's particularly you know, targeted toward big tech, but I do think that some of the concepts that they're thinking about in rewriting these uh, are focused on looking at the power that's been amassed by big tech and asking, how did they get there?
4: So how long would it take to revamp the rules and go through the approval process, the comment period?
6: Yeah, it it takes a long time. Now, they're targeting to have new guidelines released before the end of 2022. I don't know if they'll make it. I think they could, though. Um, They first have put out what's called a request for information where they're asking anybody, you know, economists, academics, lawyers, farmers, ranchers, (laughs) consumers, anybody to provide any input that they want to in response to this request for information. They've kind of laid out a list of questions and things they're thinking about and and areas where they'd like input, and they'll collect all those up through March. Uh, They'll review all those, and based on that review and their own internal studies, they'll put together sort of a draft set, and then that draft set will go out to the public, and that'll probably be quite a few months after they've collected those comments. And then there's a new comment period that opens where people, consumers, anybody out there can then provide comments to the draft set. And based on those comments, that draft gets tweaked, and then you have a final. And that's what they're targeting to have out by the end of the year.
4: So in the midst of this comes Microsoft's $69 billion (laughs) all-cash takeover of Activision Blizzard. Tell us about that deal.
6: Yeah, you know, it's, it's a sad thing for Microsoft that the deal was announced and, and simultaneously <laughs> they heard that the rules of the road are getting changed. So, you know, I would say about that deal that in the olden days, maybe five years ago, it's one of those deals that we wouldn't even really blink. We'd say this really isn't a problematic deal. Um, it has both horizontal and vertical aspects. We, we, they do compete, both companies, in developing and publishing games. And then Microsoft also competes further downstream from that in the distribution of games and operating a storefront on its Xbox, which is a console to play digital games. So it has that vertical aspect also. The horizontal aspect is really not problematic. You know, Microsoft is very small in the scheme of things in a pretty fragmented and competitive market for game development. And Activision actually is too. You know, we don't know what the market shares are combined in in just the U.S. market, but globally combined, they'd have about 10 or 11 percent, which is just not usually, you know, a level of market share that raises concern. On the vertical side, I'll say ordinarily years ago, we wouldn't have had concerns either, but that's where I think things are changing and where these rules of the road may change. There has been really a, a lot of changes with the way we think about the potential harm that can be caused by vertical integration in the last couple of years. And these agencies are particularly cognizant of those sorts of deals. And so they'll be looking at whether or not there could be harm from the market caused by Microsoft foreclosing its rivals in the distribution in that console world of games by keeping the, the popular Activision games or all the Activision games from its rivals in order to harm its rivals and boost its own business. And, and they'll be looking at that. And they'll have to determine whether Microsoft has the incentive and the ability to do that, economic incentive. Does it, does it make sense for Microsoft ultimately to do that in an economic sense? Now, now those are, that's the way it would be looked at today. We don't know how those rules are going to change. So with these new guidelines, there might be something that uh, impacts this deal more so than we understand it to be impacted today. Normally, you'd ask in a vertical deal whether there's market power upstream or downstream. And in this case, I, I don't think there's market power either in the distribution end or in the development and publication end of games. But and ordinarily, that probably wouldn't have succeeded in, in the court challenge. But we don't know how these guidelines might change, and we don't know how that might influence a judge down the road if a challenge were to be brought. So I think it's an interesting time from Microsoft, um, and I think that they're going to get in-depth scrutiny of this deal. And I think it's even possible they could face a challenge at the end of that road. Um, As things stand today, I wouldn't see that challenge having a great chance of success in court. But as I said, things could change, the rules of the road could change, and and a judge could take that into account. These guidelines are not binding on the court. Uh, they're just meant to be guidelines, but they are often cited as persuasive. They are often followed by judges. So it would remain to be seen how a judge would treat a situation where they might have a new set of guidelines that say something different than the old ones. Uh, but precedents that, that have, you know, struck, uh, granted clearance for similar deals in the past. I, I say like AT&T Time Warner, which probably would be a kind of a similar case in court.
4: Has Microsoft drawn less scrutiny than the other tech giants since it was sued by the Justice Department two decades ago? You don't hear about Microsoft as much.
6: You don't, and I definitely think it hasn't been the focus. It hasn't been talked about or as much of a focus of uh, of criticism for antitrust conduct as much as Google, Amazon, Apple, and Facebook have. But remember that, you know, as you pointed out, Microsoft got in a lot of trouble years ago went through a long, long period of scrutiny, you know, a court battle that they essentially lost, even though they ultimately weren't broken up. And they had to be, they were operating under constraints for many years after that, because they entered a consent agreement, agreeing to behave in certain ways. So they were operating under that consent agreement for many years, which basically prevented them from engaging in the kind of anti-competitive conduct some of these other platforms are now accused of engaging in. So they really had to mind their P's and Q's, and they did. And, and that kind of kept them out of the spotlight, the antitrust spotlight.
4: Is there a chance that other countries, the EU or China, will be reviewing this deal as well? Yeah, I, I am
6: fairly certain the EU will be. Uh, I haven't looked at the, at the um, data yet to understand whether there would be a review in China, although I think that there probably could be. I don't think that there would be as much concern coming out of EU or China on this deal. You know, the EU recently cleared Microsoft's acquisition of another game company called ZeniMax, uh, which, like Activision, smaller than Activision, but like Activision, also developed and published games. And the European Commission published a pretty lengthy opinion on, you know, how they cleared that and decided it wouldn't cause harm. And a lot of the principles that they talked about in that decision would apply to this matter as well. Although I'll say that the European Commission and the current antitrust agencies in the U.S. have been very aligned, communicating a lot, cooperating a lot in the last year, uh, and they probably align on this deal, too. Share information, share analysis, discuss the deal, and and probably be on the same page.
4: And Activision has been shrouded in controversy since last July after a California state agency filed a sexual bias lawsuit against it. Microsoft will be taking over all those lawsuits, I assume?
6: You know, probably. it, it These contingencies like that, uh, legal overhangs that, uh, that an acquired company has at the time of acquisition, it's a separate negotiation between them. And, you know, either the buyer takes on the liability for that or they don't. I think in this case, Microsoft probably agreed to take on those legal legal
4: problems. Do we know if it's the FTC or the Justice Department who's going to do the inquiry?
6: You know, we don't, and and there's a possibility there could be a turf war on this one. (laughs) You know, there's no clear reviewer, and they both may be interested. The DOJ, obviously, usually tends to take on matters that concern Microsoft. They also tend to have uh, industry expertise for deals that are in the internet industry or in software. But the FTC, on the other hand, generally has industry expertise in hardware matters, um, may be very interested in this case. So it's going to be a situation where they're going to have to discuss it. I mean, that's what they do when there's kind of no clear um, agency to take on responsibility for a deal. They just communicate with one another and
4: flip a coin at the end of the day if they have to. Thanks, Jen. That's Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Litigation Analyst Jennifer Ree. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show.